If you have your Bibles, take and turn to Romans chapter 2, or inside your bulletin, you'll see an outline of the sermon. If you would take that out, and the scripture passage is there in each of the three points on the front and back. I'm going to read the whole section. It's a long and tight and complex passage, but I'm going to read it all, and then we will unpack it, and I hope in a, in a simple and clear way this morning. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? <laughs> I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being considered as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation 
is just. So far, the reading of God's Word. I have a friend who belongs to the Church of England. He belongs to the Episcopal Church. And if you've ever been to one of their services in their uh, liturgy, in the litany from the Book of Common Prayer, they recite with their priest, O God, the Father of heaven, have mercy upon us miserable sinners. O God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us miserable sinners. O God, the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, have mercy upon us miserable sinners. O holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, Three persons in one God have mercy upon us miserable sinners. And my friend, uh, who's a member of that church, he says, you know, John, whenever we get to that part in the service, he says, I never say that miserable sinner stuff. That makes me feel soiled. Well, at least give him credit for being honest. Because he doesn't like the idea that he is a miserable sinner and certainly does not want to be identified with those other miserable sinners in his midst. And if you're new to us, we are studying through the book of Romans. And (laughs) it's a bit overwhelming, but in the first chapters of the book of Romans, Paul assumes a relentless prosecution of people, identifying them, convicting them as sinners, and addressing the excuses that rise up to deflect the charge (laughs) in every human heart. And you remember, in chapter 1, there was that first excuse, that common objection, I didn't know I was accountable to the living and true God. And Paul says, everyone knows. All men know. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, like trying to hold a beach ball down, (laughs) keeping it down under the water. But it bubbles up. All men know and have been given over to the uncleanness of their hearts, and the wrath of God is revealed against them. Then last week, we saw in the beginning of chapter 2, uh, that Paul addresses the ex- th- that second excuse that says, I may not be perfect, but I'm a lot better than that person sitting next to me or in front of me this morning. Um, thank you very much. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than those people at work or those other kids in school. And Paul goes after them just as Jesus went after. Remember Jesus? He went after those who trusted in their own righteousness and looked with contempt on others and judged them. And Jesus says, the Roman centurion, the hated Samaritan, the woman of disrepute, even that slimeball Zacchaeus, he will become, they will be children of Abraham, and you Pharisees, the kingdom will be ripped away from you. And now, in this third part, in in this second part of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, 
Paul looks at a third excuse of people who happen to be very religious and who say, but I'm a church member. And he goes hard after those who see themselves in the covenant community having the the truth and the rituals of God and trusting in them. I studied the writings of a man named Bruce Gochi this week whose, whose writings were very helpful, and he helped me see that Paul was doing what the Old Testament prophets used to do. Anybody ever read the book of Amos? It's a little book in the Old Testament. And what Amos the prophet does is he gathers all the people of southern Israel, and he says, I want you to hear the oracles of God, and first he addresses the pagan nations all around them, and he says the judgment of God is coming on the pagan nations, and the people of southern Israel say, yeah, all right. And then he addresses the people of northern Israel, and they're not quite as happy about that, but they know that the northern kingdom has apostatized, has turned away, and he pronounces the judgment of God upon them. And then he turns and he addresses the people of southern Israel and he tells them the judgment of God, you men of Judah will fall upon you and they do not like that one bit. And so that's, that's kind of the way Gochi says Paul is going. It's very insightful, you see. He's narrowing it in now to those who say, but, but I'm a member of the covenant community, I'm a church member. He turns his attention to the sin of the religious people. And you see three points in your outline, okay? The first point is don't trust in mere religious talk. And the second point is don't trust in religious rites and rituals. And then the third point will be to answer the question, well, then who can you trust? And in verses 17 through 24 in our first point, Paul is saying, he's saying there's all kinds of religious talkers, and they are full of themselves, and they have some sense, they have a good systematic theology, they have a good knowledge of the oracles of God, and when they consider themselves, as they address the people around them, why they consider themselves a light to those in darkness. A guide I am to those who are blind. And to you young ones in the faith, a a teacher of children and, and an instructor of the foolish, so am I. And he nails them in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And he exposes what he talked about last week in chapter 2 verse 12 that those who are under the law will be judged by the law, the very law that they're teaching. And we'll see next week, they all come up short. And the lesson here is, God, don't just give me a teacher who can tell me the law of God. Give me a teacher who knows how to teach himself and how to repent of the of his own transgressions of the law that, yes, he's rightfully teaching. Give me a leader, a teacher who's broken deeply by his own sin and has the gospel of grace, who knows what to do with it. That's what I need. 
But if you look at the reflection in your bulletin this morning, again, this gentleman, Bruce Gauci, he says uh, very simply, he says here in the reflection, Paul knew that religious people can talk a good game, but they also often struggle to live up to the life they are seeking to lead. They talk about love, but hatred lurks in their heart. They talk about purity, but lustful thoughts overwhelm their mind. They know how to speak against error, yet still define error by their own preference. They know idolatry is wrong, but they act like they can set their own rules. They know that they should give God His due, but they find ways to cheat God. Oh my, Lord have mercy. Preachers dressed in a nice suit with a tie. Men in clerical garb wearing a collar. Men who have diplomas from seminaries on their walls. Doesn't that qualify you to, to be my teacher? And Paul says it does not. And men have done vandalism to the word of God and the gospel of Christ. Even if they hold a Bible in their hands or they dress outwardly the part. We talk a good game. Listen, it's good to have good teachers, and this church has a lot of good teachers. One of the great blessings of our church and is we have gifted and godly teachers, but if all that you get from us is good advice and religious talk and loads and loads of correction, but our lives give no evidence of true repentance and faith in the very areas of which we speak. If our hearts do not reflect in, in our Sunday school class or our youth group or from the pulpit that we are following Jesus, then watch out, right? Watch out. Because this is the way religious people are. They look good, they sound good, but God knows the truth. In their hearts, so often, they ignore God and pursue their own interests. And Paul says it is deadly to the church. He says it right in this text. He says that you violate, you're mocking God. And even worse, look at verse 24. For as it is written, you religious talkers, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What could be worse? You stand representing Jesus and you're actually pushing the unbeliever away. And they say, well, if that's what it's like, I don't need it. You see? Jack Miller, he, he comments on this passage and he says, you know, these people know the law. The law is good. The Bible tells us the law is good and holy, but the law is like a compass. And to simply claim that I'm giving you the law is misguided because the law cannot give you a new heart. The law does not give anybody a new heart. Christ and the Holy Spirit give a new heart. The law can't do it. And if it is the modus operandi, that is, if it's our style as a church for me to do what it says here, to correct others, 
to instruct others, to just give you and tell you what you ought to do and how you ought to be, and relentlessly point my finger at you, Jack Miller says, watch out, you who are quick (laughs) to correct others, because you yourself will be held to the same standard in your heart of hearts. Jack says, this passage is about the use of the tongue. And he said, a lot of people have the spiritual gift of correcting others. Is that your gift? Is that your spiritual gift? My spiritual gift is correcting other people, you see. And Jack says, you know, why don't you use your tongue to praise God? Why don't you use your tongue to point people to Jesus and to confess your own sins and fly to the cross and say, come join me in coming to the cross. Use your tongue to praise God and watch how that draws people. Don't put your trust in religious talkers. I'll tell you all around the world, millions of people follow religious leaders whether it's television evangelists or leaders of denominations, and they'll follow the religious talker. Paul says, don't do that. And then he goes deeper in verses 25 through 29. And he says, don't trust in mere religious rites and rituals. And what is the main religious ritual that defines the faithful Jews there in Rome to whom he writes? What is it? Circumcision. Isn't that interesting? And if you think that circumcision is just a little hospital procedure that you do to a boy, uh, you know, um, for, for hygiene purposes, you don't understand that God gave this sign to Father Abraham. The sign of entrance into the covenant community for all the males. And they were each one circumcised as a sign that they belonged to the Lord. Every male was essentially, what, how to explain it, branded by God. When, when, a, when a rancher gets a new steer, what does he do to say, this steer, this, this, these cattle are mine? He brands them. And in a sense, in the, in the cutting off of the foreskin of the male organ, there is this sign that it becomes very evident and is always remembered that I have been brought into the covenant community of God. And that in the cutting off of the, of the filth of that, uh, the people of Israel were, were, were shown to be cut off from the filth of the nations around them. It's the sign of the covenant. But what is taught in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? What is taught to be important about circumcision? And it is this. It's not that you are saved and pleasing to God because you have the sign. It is that you are saved and pleasing to God because you have the thing signified. And again and again, the Bible makes that distinction. People can have the sign without having the thing signified. You know, you, Jack Miller, he says, anybody can wear a wedding ring. You can go to the jeweler and buy a wedding band. That doesn't make you married. 
at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Did you get that? And so what was the purpose of the sign? What does the sign point to? Because clearly that's what you need. It pointed for their need to have their hearts cleansed and set apart to love Him. And again and again, look at these verses under point two, Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Now here it comes. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Both. Fathers, fathers, present your sons. Bring them into the covenant community. You see, that's why the Bible teaches baptism, which is the sign of the covenant in the new covenant, right? Baptism is, follows circumcision. We'll see that more clearly in Colossians 2. That's why it's given to you and your children. The sign is given, but what is needful is the thing it signifies. And what is that? It's a circumcised heart, the cleansing. Make me clean within, O Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 16, God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah, when he addresses the apostasy of Israel in chapter 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. What is that foreskin of the, of the heart? What is it? Because of your evil deeds. Sin must be dealt with. Sin in the heart must be dealt with. And so here's the primary point of number two. The Jewish people in the first century really believed if you have the sign, you don't have to worry about hell. In fact, there were rabbis at that time, I read this week, Rabbi Menachem, who quotes the other rabbis in that time, uh, commenting on the book of Moses, and he says, no circumcised man will ever see hell. Hmm. Do you remember what Paul's name was before he became Paul? What was his name? Saul. And in the book of Acts, chapter 7, as the mob is gathering to stone Stephen, it says Saul stood there giving approval. As, and then Stephen gives this great talk, this marvelous uh, presentation from the Bible. And as he realizes these men are going to kill me, he lays it right out for them down in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Why was Paul so upset? Because Stephen insulted him. I have the law, and I have the circumcision. Stephen says, that won't cut it with God, you stiff-necked people, because it's about having a circumcised heart, 
a cleansed heart, a new heart by the Spirit of God, and you resist the Spirit of God. Now here's the point. What are the things today that we trust in as religious rituals? Is there a parallel for us? What might it be? For many people, it's baptism, because baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of entrance into the covenant. Now, I get so excited. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be baptizing some of the children of the church. And I'll tell you what, it is, it's a high point of the year for me. I love when we mark the children of believing parents with the sign of the covenant and say to those children, welcome, we love you, you're in our community. And I love it twice a year when we receive new members, but especially when our young teenagers make their public profession of faith They are confirmed. They profess their faith in confirmation among us. It's one of the best days days of the calendar year. I love it. But we must never allow our children or the adults that we baptize, because adults can be baptized and trust in the sign. Care if you're Presbyterian or Baptist. It's a great danger to both. If you trust in the sign, Paul's telling us here, it is dangerous. You say, oh, but I take communion. I take communion. Good, you should take communion. But if you're trusting in the sacraments, there are entire denominations that teach, you know, if you eat the cookie, you get the grace. The water got poured on you. You got the grace. Trust in your baptism. Trust in the sacrament. And the road to hell is paved with that theology. I hope no one in this church says, my parents were Christians, so I'm a Christian. Whatever. And, and, and your own little personal religious routines. I don't know what yours are, but I'll tell you what. We are all a little bit OCD. (laughs) We all have our rituals, and we trust them. Somehow we talk ourselves into this ritual is really why God loves me and accepts me. And we need to be set free of that. Don't trust the religious rituals. You can wear a wedding, wedding ring without being married. So, wow, if you can't trust the religious talkers and if you can't trust the religious rituals, who can you trust? And this is where Paul turns a corner and it's very interesting as he writes and this is point number three. And the first thing we see, uh, especially that jumps off the page to me in, in chapter three, verse four, is Paul says, Let God be true, though every man is a liar. And I love that verse, don't you? Just because a man wears a nice tie and holds a Bible in his hand or has a seminary degree, he has fallen short of the glory of God. There is one person to trust, and that is the living and true God. We speak of our our God in the Bible as, that's a great term. Who is your God? My God is the living and true God. 
He's true. His word is true. Without error, it is given to us clear and strong. God's word is true. Though every man is a liar, And then Paul, in the midst of this, is he is addressing what I call the evasive dance of all kinds of religious objections. And, and what he's doing, they may not be your objections, but did you catch the cadence back and forth? Then what advantage does the Jew have? That's in verse 1. Or what's the value of circumcision? Then Paul. Or what if some were unfaithful? Or... or um, Is God unrighteous to inflict His wrath on us? And should we not do evil that good may come? What he's doing in these, and he's answering them very quickly, but he's just exposing the religious, the evasive dance that the human heart does. Again, this guy, Bruce Gotchi, he says, you know, in the fourth chapter of John's gospel, we have this great example of how this happens in the human heart. Anybody remember the woman at the well in Samaria? And Jesus comes to her and he, uh, he offers her living water. And she says, ooh, give me some. Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know you've been married five times and you're now living with a man who's not your husband. And what does she do? Does she repent of her sin? No. She says, let's talk about theology. <laughs> and she starts this evasive dance. Do we worship in Mount Gerizim or, or in Jerusalem? And, and people always want to do this. Rather than deal with their need for circumcision of the heart, rather than say, <laughs> I'm a miserable sinner, people will say things, and I bet you've heard it. People will say, you know, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. You ever hear that people say that? I'm not, I, I, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. And what they reveal when they say that is that they have engaged in the evasive dance that does not want to hear the prosecutor indict them as one of the miserable sinners of humanity. They just don't want to hear it. It offends their sensibility. Now, when your friend says, I'm just spiritual, don't do what I just did. <laughs> please. Don't say, my pastor says, you're you're doing an evasive dance. But you should know that is what they are doing. Because they need circumcision of the heart. I need circumcision of the heart. And Paul says the excuses need to stop. Nobody gets to heaven by being religious. Nobody gets to heaven because they follow a TV evangelist or a preacher or a pope. It doesn't get you into heaven. What gets you to heaven? It is the circumcision of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. What is it? It is the accomplishment of redemption by Jesus Christ described in a terrible and beautiful way as the circumcision of Christ And then the application, the circumcision by the Spirit to your heart. Redemption accomplished and applied. Listen, Jesus Christ came to circumcise your heart. Whoa, where does it say that? And we read it early in the service, didn't we? Look at Colossians 2. Look, this is the clearest passage about this. In Him also, 
You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he goes on to explain it. Having been buried with him in baptism. When was Christ buried in baptism? Hmm? You remember he said to James and John who wanted to be at his right and left, he says, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What was he talking about? He was talking about the cross. He was talking about that ordeal of death. Baptism is a death ordeal where the waters wash over. In the Old Testament, the waters wash over. We pour it on their heads. It splashes. It's not only washing, but it is also death. And Jesus was given a baptism of death. And he was cut off in a bloody sacrifice. There it is. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. This is the circumcision of Christ in his death. And then he who was cut off and punished and who becomes, remember the Bible says Jesus actually becomes sin. He became our sinful filth. And the wrath of God fell on him at the cross. But then our baptism is more than just union with Christ in his death. Because Paul goes on, he says in verse 12, in which you were also, I love this, pay attention now, in which you were also raised with him. What's that? Your union with him is the resurrection from the dead. You're alive now as Jesus is alive. Through faith, how does it come? Is it through your performance? Is it through the sacraments? Is it through following some teacher? No. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. There it is. Together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside where, how? Nailing it to the cross. Okay. The accomplishment of your redemption is a result of the bloody death of Jesus Christ, the circumcision of Christ on the cross, and you are hidden with him and united with him. Do you believe today, my friends, do you believe in Jesus? By faith are you united to Jesus. For some of you, you say, whoa, this is the first day I ever understood I am among the miserable sinners who needs the circumcision of Christ for my, the uncircumcision of my flesh. Are you ready to become a Christian today? Are you ready today to trust in Christ alone who was cut off for you? If you are, this is a good day for you. This is a good day. God gives grace to the humble who admit this. And you need grace and I need his grace. But then there is the application of that redemption. And how is that done? The circumcision done by the Spirit. Here's the third person of the Trinity. God the Father is true, though everyone is a liar. Christ the Son is the circumcision, the one who dies the bloody death in our behalf. And then the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our lives, to our hearts. 
And I wonder, have you come to the place in your life where you rejoice that God sends His Spirit to you to, to clean up your heart? And that you could sing what we sang this morning truthfully. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is the key. You know, what is your worst sin? What would your husband say your worst sin is? What would your wife say your worst sin is? Is it selfishness? That's pretty bad. Are you ever mean? That's pretty bad. Is it lust? That's pretty bad. But your worst sin is grieving the Holy Spirit, denying the Holy Spirit, opening your heart to God and saying, cleanse me deep within. Just and holy is thy name. Charles Wesley says, I am all unrighteousness. Wash me within, Holy Spirit, circumcise my heart. Remember who went home justified last week? It was the man who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I pray today that as each of us says this, when we sing these songs, we would not be like trained animals who just sing on cue, but we sing from our hearts. Because Jesus was cut off, made filth for us, that we may be made clean, clean, in Him. Let's offer our hearts to the Lord now. Let's take a few moments and invite Him to cleanse you and to cleanse me from our hypocrisy. Would we do that now? And invite Him to send His Holy Spirit to clean and convict us. Let us pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, this morning, we come quickly to you. Not many times in our life do we have the opportunity to receive Christ as Savior. And first now we, we join with anyone here who would say for the first time, I, I am counted among the miserable sinners, not just those out there. I when I am judged by the perfect law of God, I am found wanting. And I understand, Lord, maybe for the first time that you were cut off and made filth because of my sin. And by faith, I put my trust in you both to cleanse me and pardon and nail my sins to the cross and to make me alive because of your resurrection. And that new life, Lord, would begin now and would continue through all eternity. And if, if that's your prayer, something amazing and beautiful has happened today. And we who are Christians, we pray that our trust would be in the God who is true. No TV evangelist, no cleric, certainly not John Yanchko. Our trust is in the living and true God. 
though all men are liars. We know you are true. Your word is true and right. And we would put our trust, Lord, in the Holy Spirit, even now. Come, Holy Spirit. Cleanse us, each one. Hide us in Christ. Connect us to Jesus day by day, hour by hour. We want to be connected. We want the Holy Spirit that proceeds, the Bible says, from the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, to come and fill us and clean us Empower us, enliven us, and make us new and fresh. Oh, Lord, this bad news message is good news because we have the Spirit of Christ circumcising our hearts this day. We pray against, we pray for our pastor, for our teachers, our elders, We pray that we would not merely be correctors of people. We pray that we would be humble, repentant sinners who teach ourselves the very thing we teach others. There's nothing that young people despise more than hypocrisy and the cynicism of the folks in their 20s and 30s today, oh Lord, is from the stench of hypocrisy that they see around them. We pray for the North Shore Community Church. Oh, Lord, we pray for ourselves. You would deliver us from such hypocrisy, being mere talkers and correctors of others. And in its place, you would make our tongues explode with praise and honor to God, love for Jesus, flying to the cross, Say, I need to be washed. Come join me in the fountain. We pray for our church. We pray you would welcome others into our church who need the washing, who need the circumcision. We ask you not only to forgive us our sins, we ask you to forgive us our righteousness in which we often trust. In Christ alone is our hope to be found. And we find it in you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.